Uh, Beloved, I've uh, shared once or twice before a a wonderful, unexpected blessing that we received from the Lord about six years ago here at Santan Bible Church. For the first eight years of our existence, in terms of uh, offering, we just had a box in the back. And uh, through much prayer and consideration, discussion among the elders, about six years ago, we made the decision that we wanted to start, quote, passing the plate. And we began doing that, and that's the kind of things that can rupture and destroy churches, believe it or not. Uh, but what we weren't expecting, and what happened was, right when we did that, the actually uh, giving increased by 20%. Now, that was absolutely not at all the intent or the motivation behind. The intent was solely to better shepherd the church. That was just a blessing from the Lord that we, at the time, and still do think was just a, a blessing from God, reflecting on biblical ministry and a beautiful, beautiful church. I was thinking of that this week because there's another situation in history where there was an unexpected uh, result that came out of an act. When they were building the Golden Great Bridge, 23 men at the beginning of the construction fell to their deaths while constructing the Golden Gate Bridge. So they eventually erected a safety net underneath it. I don't know why they waited for 23 people to happen, but they did that. Ten more men still fell, but the net saved them. Now, the unexpected result that they weren't seeing was that actually they analyzed it afterwards and realized that the productivity of the workers increased 25% by virtue. Now, again, the purpose, the intent of the safety net was to save lives, but that was an unexpected consequence. The idea was that the men, when they were working, had the full assurance of their safety, And with their whole heart and energy dedicated to work, they're able to increase what they were doing by way of service. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Our passage this morning, it's part 1 of Hebrews 6 verses 9 through 20. We'll cover the first four verses, Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. Now, this passage, of course, comes on the heels of Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 8, which we covered last week. And by way of segue between the passage last week, 4 through 8, and the passage this week, which is the beginning treatment of, even as we sang in that beautiful hymn, the blessed assurance that we enjoy in Christ, the steadfast anchor of our soul, which is hope on the promise of God. Now, by way of segue between those two, I'm going to read a quote from the good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about the effect of misunderstanding of verses 4 through 8. This is what he said. Dr. Jones said, quote, I can definitely say, after some 35 years of pastoral experience, there are no passages in the whole of Scripture which have more frequently troubled people and caused them soul agony than the passage in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8, and the companion passage in Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. Uh, The doctor continues, large numbers of Christians are held in bondage by Satan owing to a misunderstanding of these particular statements. I do not say, he clarifies, that these are the two most difficult passages in the Bible. I do not regard them as such, but I do assert they are passages the devil seems to use most frequently in order to distress and to trouble God's people. 
So that is what he, end quote, that is what he said about Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8. By way of reminder, the main verb, or the main word, actually it's not a verb, the main word thrust forward in the original language, the main overarching theme of verses 4 through 8 is impossible impossible. The author begins in verse 4 outlining four characteristics of a group of people he calls those, those people who demonstrate and experience true salvation. They are enlightened. They are, have tasted of the heavenly gift. They have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted of the good word of God and of the things to come. But when this group of people, when they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And what the author is doing there is he's describing an impossible scenario. It's part of this severity and intensity of a strong warning to people to have a false assurance of people that aren't truly trusting in Christ, and even in the midst of that, and even by virtue of the illustration he gives in verses 7 and 8, it is also to strengthen the assurance of true believers. He warns the unbeliever and he assures the true believer. We should remember that the author there was preaching to one congregation, a group of Hebrew believers who were suffering persecution and oppression, and they were facing a temptation to go back and to fall away from Christ, to desert Christ and go back to their old dead works of legalism. And there's one congregation, and as we know, in any congregation there are wheat and there are tares. There are saved and there are unsaved. There are sheep and there are goats. So the warning that he gives, to be sure, is to the goats, to the tares, to the unsaved. But even warnings are also valuable and profitable for the children of God. Not at all that we are at risk of losing our salvation, but just a warning to remind us, don't behave in this fashion. After the services last week, I had tremendous fellowship with a number of different people. I've, I've commented on that with some of you. Um, one of the great discussions and fellowship I had with a brother and sister was around the concept, well, can Christians, can believers fall away? And of course, we know from personal experience, from human experience and from Scripture, that yes, true believers can fall away temporarily, but never ultimately, never finally. We can think of, for example, David who was King David, who was a man after God's own heart, he committed adultery and murder. I think you could certainly say that he fell away from God temporarily at that point in time. He, of course, did ultimately repent. Or we can think of the mighty apostle Peter. Three times he denied Christ. At that point in time, he fell away from Christ, but he didn't remain there because Jesus even told him, Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Watch this. But I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. That is why the apostle Peter fell away for a time, but not ultimately. And so when we look at verses 4 through 8, the main warning is don't turn away from Christ. Don't turn back to Judaism. There's no turning back. Why would you turn back to the old when you have the new? Why would you turn back to the shadow when you have the substance in Christ? There's no turning back. And so the author, 
here is similar to the Apostle John in 1 John. He writes to give assurance to true believers and to remove assurance from false believers. He writes, the author of Hebrews does, to alarm the self-assured and to assure the wrongly alarmed. And what we saw as just as the author of Hebrews, when he went from telling this group of Jewish believers in chapter 5, 11 through 6, 3, that they're like spiritual babies that they can't handle, they can't digest, they can't chew on meat, they're only used to milk. He goes from that in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6 to giving them among the meatiest of meat. So also in the same way, he has a radical transition here from the severity and the intensity of the warning in verses 4 through 8 to this prompt pastoral care of great encouragement that he gives in verses 9 through 20. But listen as I read our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 9 through 12. This is the word of God. He writes, But, beloved, We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we will see in these four magnificent verses are three pillars for a troubled soul. Three pillars for a troubled soul. Confidence, justice, and continuance. The author's confidence in his audience, God's justice, and the audience's continuance, your continuance, my continuance until the end. And the intent, beloved, is that in the same way God encouraged us back in chapter 5, 11, 4 to press on to maturity, so also we should press on to full assurance with the stable anchor of unshakable hope in the promises of God. In verses uh, 13 through 20, uh, the author will go and rehearse Abraham, who believed the promise of God. When we get to Hebrews chapter 11, we'll get a litany of examples of Old Testament uh, saints who had faith in God. And the point there is they believed the promises of God because they believed the one who made the promises, God himself. That is the intent. Beloved, let's take a look first at this first pillar for a troubled soul, namely confidence. The author's confidence in this group of believers. He has full expectance, full assurance, full confidence that they will endure to the end. He expresses this confidence based on the assurance of God's word and God's work. He is convinced they won't experience an ultimate falling away, even though he did rebuke them and admonish them as a loving pastor, as a loving father, earlier 5.11 forward, he has confidence in them. Look at what it begins, verse 9. He says, but, and this is a strong contrast in the original language, but, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Now, Remember, when he launched into this warning passage at the beginning 5.11, 5.11 through 14, four times he addresses a congregation as you. 
And then in the first three verses of chapter 6, he says, us and we. He puts himself with them. But then in verses 4 through 8, in that intense warning passage, he talks about those. He, he separates those, this group of people. And this is one of the distinctions between that warning passage and the other warning passages in Hebrews. Uh, again, if you look at the other warning passages in Hebrews, every single other one, he says, you, you, or we, or us. But this intense warning in verses 4 through 8 is different than the other warnings. So he talks about those. But now he comes back with this contrast. He's back to you, you dear people. Also, by way of powerful contrast, the author chooses, God chooses as well. This is the only place in the entire epistle where he uses that beautiful term, beloved. Beloved. It's just dripping with love and affection and care and conviction the author has towards his people. And this is a love, this flows from the kind of sacrificial agape love that we read in Scripture. The love that moves. It's not a passive nor inert love. It's a love that reaches out and holds tight, like a father to a son, like a mother to a baby. It's a love that is born out of conviction, not sentiment. There is sentiment, there is emotion behind this kind of love, but its foundation is one of conviction. And in the same way that fire consumes dross, a fire will remove impurities from precious metals. So also love, agape love, biblical love, seeks to remove impurities in the one loved. That's why, for example, if you're a parent and you have a three-year-old son who's starting to poke around an outlet with a fork, you don't say, well, I don't want to stifle his creativity. Let's see what happens. You say, no, <laughs> you, know, you step in, move away from childish behavior, move on over time, graciously, patiently. You shepherd the son, you shepherd the daughter towards maturity, so also the author here. And that's why he gives both correction and consolation. He gives both admonishment and encouragement. And he says, but can I am, we are convinced. Patho, pathos, we get the English word pathos from this. He, he is persuaded. He is firmly believing. This word convinced, pathos, patheo, comes from a word meaning to tranquilize. It means that his fear and doubt about his group, this congregation, has been calmed. It's his alarmed conscience is soothed. This kind of conviction settles a troubled heart and puts a troubled heart at rest. And in the same way, that in verses 4 through 8, the word impossible is thrust right there at the beginning. It's not in verse 6, it's in verse 4 as the kind of setting the trajectory of the rest of the verse. So also the first word here in verse 12 is convinced. The, literally, the Greek reads, it's kind of like yodotok. Convinced we are concerning you, beloved, of better things. Convinced, that's the main thing, the confidence that the author has in the people. And this is a similar thought and uses the same word as the Apostle Paul. For example, Romans 8, verse 38. Uh, this week, the elders had the blessing to gather together and pray over a, uh, a, a husband and wife that are advanced in years. And it was a joy and a blessing. And this is one of the passages that I think Justin or one of the elders read. But Romans 8, 38, you may know it well. 
Paul says, I'm convinced, same word, I'm convinced neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers can ever separate you from the love of God. So again, same word and same thought between Paul and the author of Hebrews. Or the Apostle Paul again writing to the church that gave him joy in Philippians 1 verse 6. He says, I'm confident Same word. I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. That was Paul's heart. That was Paul's foundational doctrine. And that's the same thought and the same doctrine as the author here. Beloved, dear friend, understand this. God doesn't do a half job and leave your salvation incomplete. He who set the wheels of redemption in place in eternity past will accomplish what he designed from the very beginning. And it's the exact same theology, the exact same words of encouragement, assurance, and hope the author of Hebrews will give, for example, in quite a few places. uh, Chapter 5, verse 9, which we read before, where Christ in his high priestly ministry became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation not temporary salvation not contingent salvation eternal salvation so continuing on verse 9 the author writes we are convinced of better things concerning you and look at this see what it says and things that accompany salvation though we are speaking in this way that, that last phrase, though we are speaking this way, it's kind of an oddity. I think this is another reflection of a distinction between the severity of the previous impossible scenario. That's what he's talking about. Though we are speaking in this way, he's convinced of better things, accompanying salvation of them. The great Puritan John Owen said that the author had spoken to them in verses 4 through 8, but he had not spoken of them in verses 4 through 8. But Let's spring off of things that accompany salvation. Remember, in verses 7 and 8, after that strong warning, he gave a picture, he gave an illustration, a parallel illustration of two different lands, two different soils, if you will, of soils that had the same rain falling upon both of them. And the first soil, the soil in verse 7, was a soil that produced the vegetation that the farmer wanted. And that soil with its produce gave joy and blessing to the farmer. And so the farmer set his continued care and concern over the field even as it would go forward. But the contrary land, the contrary soil in verse 8, bore only thorns and thistles but the things that accompany salvation that would be the vegetation of verse 7 simply put the author has full confidence that the good soil of his audience the good soil of their hearts will produce a good crop of spiritual blessing of things that accompany salvation we could say it this way spiritual fruitfulness is a spirit excuse me, is a catalyst of spiritual assurance, of spiritual confidence. Again, spiritual fruitfulness is a catalyst of spiritual assurance. It produces assurance. It produces blessing and confidence. And so we must always ask uh, the question of ourselves, does the fruit, does the fruit of my life reflect the truth of the gospel? Does the fruit of my life, I must ask myself, reflect the things that accompany salvation that the author of Hebrews speaks of here? 
And let me say one thing that was kind of an added blessing for me, even in the context of the impossible scenario, verses 4 through 8. When I considered even further this week the illustration, the illustration in verse 7 of the good fruit-bearing, vegetation-bearing soil of verse 7, and the, in a sense, barren, thistle-thorns-producing illustration of verse 8, as I thought more about that, I realized that that actually supports and strengthens the contrast and the idea of this impossible scenario. In other words, in that illustration of verse 8, there's no sense at all of any kind of deceptiveness of the land. The rain falls, but there's nothing. It's just thorns and thistles. Think, for example, of the physical example that Jesus used of the fig tree. Remember when he was entering into Jerusalem during the Passion Week, he saw a fig tree that had leaves producing. But then when he came back, there was no fruit, and so Jesus cursed the fig tree. And the illustration he was given there bore out from the fact that a fig tree bears leaves as a precursor and an expectation that fruit would come after the leaves. So that was the physical imagery that Christ gave by cursing the fig tree as a lesson to the nation of Israel. The idea of having some kind of deceptive measure of professing faith but not possessing faith. Or you can think of the parable of the soils. There was the one good soil that gave fruit, but then there were three soils that didn't produce fruit. Two of the soils were deceptive. And again, this is all part of when we look at verses 4 through 6 at the beginning, there's all these marks that are describing true salvation. And some people, I would say, have a mistaken understanding that those are people that, that are right there. They're so close to salvation. They're in the local church. They're demonstrating on the outside all kinds of fruit and trappings of what true salvation looks like, but it's deceptive because they're not truly saved. Well, Two of the soils, there was the soil where the seed fell on shallow soil and it penetrated and there was an instant growing of fruit, a deception of a profession of faith. But then when the sun came and baked, the plants died because they weren't truly saved. Or the seed that fell on the ground and the soil that had thorns and when the cares of the world and the persecution came, the thorns choked them out so that they proved they weren't truly saved. The one other soil was the hard soil where the seeds fell and the bird did, had no penetration. The birds came and plucked it. So there's no profession, no deception of faith. So all that to say that when we look at verse 8, there's no indication whatsoever of any kind of presentation outward or otherwise of faith. And that's why we shouldn't understand the beginning verses 4 through 6 is describing some kind of deceptive measure of believers. But Let's get back on task. That was just an extra blessing that came to myself in my study this week, so I thought I'd share it with you. So, beloved, we have the first pillar for a troubled soul is confidence. The author's confidence, the pastor's confidence, the husband's confidence, the wife's confidence. The second pillar for a troubled heart is God's justice. And while the fruitfulness of the soil is a catalyst for assurance, the justice of the sower, the justice of God, is the far greater, the infinitely greater of catalysts for your assurance, for my assurance, for our confidence. You see, our hope is not ultimately grounded. Your hope is not ultimately grounded in your commitment. My hope is not ultimately grounded in my commitment. Our hope, our blessed assurance is firmly grounded in God's character. And that is where the author goes now. And we can ask the question, okay, yeah, I, I get that, but when I think of 
attributes of God that would be a strengthening measure of my assurance. I mean, God's mercy, God's patience, God's grace, God's kindness, but God's justice? Uh, you know, how, do, how does that work in? But look at what the author says in verse 10. He says, for God is not unjust, not unjust. Uh, in the Greek, double negatives are okay. We would say, well, we should say God is just. Yeah, God is just. The author says God is not unjust. He's driving home the point. And so how does the justice of God drive home our assurance? Well, we know from all the way from the beginning through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, that God is just, that God will punish evil and God will bless good. So what the author said is, keep looking, verse 10, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, toward his character, toward his authority, toward his lordship. The love which you have shown toward his name in, verse 10 at the end, having ministered and still ministering to the saints, to the holy ones, to the other believers. What did Jesus teach? How, how did Jesus say that people will know you? They will know you by what? By your love for one another. So although this congregation of Hebrew believers is immature and they're milk-suckling spiritual babes, they are demonstrating love. And by that, people will know that they belong to him, that they truly are following him. And that's what the author is bringing out here. And I love what the author inseparably joins together here, which is namely work and love, service and love. Work and love, beloved, are fruit of a regenerated heart. And it's the same pairing the author will give Later on in chapter 10, verse 24, when he writes, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Both are necessary. And that's right there in the context of not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some. It's the same kind of pairing that the apostle John brings out in his first epistle, 1 John 3, verse 18 John, Father John writes, the apostle of truth who became the apostle of love, not at the expense of truth, but truth and love. He wrote, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue only, but in deed and truth, in work and truth, same word. For, watch this, verse 19, we shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. And just on a side, the Greek word for assure there in 1 John 3, 19 is the same word as convince in Hebrews 6, verse 9. Beloved, the point there is this kind of work and love gives confidence to those around us and it gives confidence to ourselves. And we will say this, this is all part of the flowing out, the product of the justice of God. And so we should understand this, the justice of God here is not compensation for good works. Good works, your good works, my good works are the fruit of our salvation. And we can put it this way, first and foremost, foundationally, our blessed assurance is based upon the character of God. And our blessed assurance is experientially buttressed by the evidence of our works. Again, foundationally based upon God's character and experientially 
evidenced by our works and by our love. We are not saved because we work in love. We work in love because we are saved. And I'll uh, give an illustration from Isaiah 49, verse 15. God speaks to the prophet Isaiah. He gives a beautiful illustration and then an application. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? I mean, the point there, at the human level, there is no greater love than a woman for their child, for their grown-up child, or especially from their nursing babe. But what God says is, as wonderful, as beautiful, as powerful as that is, that still pales in comparison to the veracity, the integrity, and the intensity of God's love. For, the verse continues, even these may forget, even a A mother who loves her nursing babe may forget, but I will not forget you. Why? Because God is not unjust. Unjust. He is not unjust. He is just. Beautiful, credible hymns that we're singing this morning. Another one, before the throne of God above, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there, Jesus, who made an end to all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Now watch this. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Beloved, this is why the justice of God strengthens your assurance. To God be the glory. So, There's the author's confidence. There's God's justice. Finally, there is the audience continuance. There's your continuance until the end in the perseverance of your pilgrimage. We know even taking from the illustration of spiritual babies back in chapter 5 verse 11 that arrested growth, stunted growth physically and even more spiritually is a tragedy. Beloved, our life must be marked by progress and perseverance until the end. That's why he says, look at verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. Each one of you, not one left behind, not just this amorphous glob of a congregation, but each one of you. But he says we desire. You might have noticed that I emphasize that. It's a Greek word, epithemeo. It's normally translated as lust in the New Testament. This powerful, powerful passion where it's more often than not translated as lust in an obvious negative sinful sense where the, the passion and the desire is so great that I will sin to get what I don't have or I'll even sin to hold on to what I do have. But this powerful word describing a desperate longing for something can be used in a positive sense. For example, our Lord Jesus Christ in the upper room discourse. Luke 22, verse 15, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired, I have epithumeo, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So the one who never sinned, could not sin, and did not sin had this intense longing and desire to eat the Passover with his beloved disciples before he would suffer. And that is the way in which the author uses it here. He says, we desire that each and every one of you show the same kind of diligence, the same kind of diligence. And what the author is doing here, Chrysostom 
the, said this, that the author comes to the audience. And God, in a sense, comes to us. But the author comes not with the authority of a teacher, but with the affection of a father. Of course, God comes to us with both the authority, the ultimate authority, the ultimate teacher. But the accent here is on the affection of a father. And this word diligence. Diligence is the opposite of laziness. Remember back in 5 verse 11, he wanted to instruct when he broke off into that warning passage. He wanted to give them further instruction on how Christ is the perfect ultimate high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But, he said, you become dull of hearing. You become lazy of hearing. You become sluggish. So the same word that we see here, or we will see coming into verse 12. So diligence is the opposite of that laziness of hearing that we saw back in 5 verse 11. And the word diligence, besides being the opposite of dullness and laziness, I love the way the Apostle Paul used the same word when he was writing to Titus. You may remember Titus chapter 2, Paul, God through Paul gave words of exhortation and encouragement to husbands and wives, to children and parents, to slaves and masters, to young men and older men, younger women, older women. And when he was giving the encouragement to the slaves, this is what he said. He said, slaves, Titus 2 verse 10, showing all good faith so that they, the slaves, may adorn, same word, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That's the power of what the author of Hebrews has in his heart. And then at the end of verse 11, he gives a purpose statement. He says, so as to, so that you would realize the full assurance of hope until the end. The full assurance, the blessed assurance, the complete assurance. No gap, no dent in it. The full assurance of hope. That's the same kind of full assurance he'll write to again when we get to chapter 10, verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And full assurance of hope until the end is what he says here. Until the end. Chapter 3, verse 6, the author of Hebrews gave a similar heart intent. He said, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 14, also chapter 3, he said, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So, beloved, the point there in chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 14, here in chapter 6, verse 11, he's saying that future action gives evidence to present reality. We are saved, again, I've said it many times, by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is not alone. And our works and our love gives us the confidence and our continuance, point here, in the faith, firm until the end, is an evidence of God's good work in our lives. Continuance is the test of reality. Continuation is evidence of the truth. And beloved, I would say this, when we think about this hope that is a firm fixed anchor tied to the immovable object of the immutability of God, of the work of Christ, of the promise, the word of God, and the work of God in your life, you'll never meet, I would say, a hopeful Christian who doesn't read her Bible. You'll never meet a hopeful Christian who doesn't pay attention to the word of God when it's preached, when it's taught, when it's shared, when it's 
sung. Not perfectly, but with heart and intent. You'll never meet someone full of hope who's completely forsaking the assembling together of the local church. So in any of these sins, I'll pick the last one, of forsaking the local assembly, that doesn't mean someone's not saved. That doesn't mean they have no hope whatsoever. But any kind of sin, any kind of falling short, any kind of temporary falling away from Christ impacts assurance, impacts hope, and makes us spiritually stunted in our spiritual growth. And then finally, verse 12, so that, purpose statement, you may not be sluggish. Again, same word as dull of hearing back in chapter 5, verse 11, lazy, slow to understand. And I would say this, brothers and sisters, since we are followers of Christ, we must despise laziness. Why? Because God despises laziness. We see this here. We can see Proverbs 28. That is a serious, serious sin. God is careful, exact, and perfect in all his ways. I was with Jaden yesterday, and we were taking a look at this beautiful butterfly. I think Mar my beloved Margie gave to Jaden some point in time, but it's up. It's uh, not a living butterfly. It's behind glass. I'm sure it died of natural cause, but... <laughs> Back on task here. <laughs> but, I mean, just beautiful, brilliant blue. And Jaden shared with me, I'd never thought before, but it's very difficult to find such brilliant blue in God's creation. Just absolutely incredible. You turn it over, and it's kind of brown. It would blend in with the leaves, and there are these spots that look like eyes. And, and I said, oh, you know, isn't evolution amazing? <laughs> you know, with, with every ounce of sarcasm I could bring about. But, beloved, the point here is God made the structure, the shape, the coloring of the butterfly wing, everything perfect with precise precision God is never careless or sloppy in his work therefore we should also not be careless or sloppy in anything we do I mean in sermon preparation in Bible study preparation in filling the communion cups in making our bed in the morning in the work we provide our employer whether then we eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Because God is a God of beauty and precision, therefore we ought to be as well. And every time we do a lazy, sloppy thing, we become more of a sluggard and less like God. But every time we discipline ourselves to godliness and take care of the small details, you become more like your Savior. Here in verse 12, the author continues on, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So radical contrasting those compared to the those back in verse 4 of this impossible scenario who experienced salvation and then ultimately fell away from Christ. So strong contrast. But be imitators of those, mimites. I'm Paul, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he told the Corinthians commanded by virtue of the authority of the word of God, be imitators of me just as I also am an imitator of Christ. Or Ephesians 5.1, Paul said, be imitators of God as beloved children. You may remember the story of Alexander the Great who found the guard asleep at his duty. And when the guard woke up, Alexander asked him his name and the guard said, Alexander. And he said, what's your name? Like three times, four times. What's your name? Increasing intensity. The guard was trembling because he knew the penalty for falling asleep at guard duty was death. And finally he said, it's Alexander, sir. And, Al and Alexander the Great said, you either change your behavior or change your name. 
Beloved, if we're Christians, we are to be imitators of God. And in the context here, just like imitating the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, we should be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith, hope, and love. So Hebrews 6, 10 through 12, you have that holy tripod of faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, the Apostle Paul brings out this holy tripod and even ties in work as well. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, he's talking and giving his initial greeting to this mature church in Thessalonica. And Paul writes, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved brother, sister, be encouraged by those around you. Be encouraged by those even outside of this body who are faithful and patient and are inheriting the promises. In, at the end of verse 12, when it says inherit the promises, it's the present participle, are, are inheriting the promises. So the point there is he's talking about living Christians around them. Very likely some of the very same saints that the author is commending this congregation for their demonstration of service and love to these saints. Some of those very same saints are the ones that are being described here as now inheriting the promises of God. And then in verse 13, Paul will launch, which we'll get next week, into a tremendous example of Abraham, the father of the faith. When Abraham trusted God, when Abraham believed the word of God, and when God even swore a promise and made an oath based on his own name. And then again in chapter 11, we'll see the examples of the Old Testament saints. So it's all of the above, those who inherit the promises. Or back in Hebrews 1, verse 14, those who will inherit salvation. So beloved, imitate those who believe the promises of God because they believe the one who made the promises. And understand this, an assured Christian is strong and healthy. An unassured Christian is weak and feeble, at the time at least. God is not the author of unfinished business. He will finish the good work he began in your life. And we're going to sing a beautiful song and one more fantastic hymn here after the sermon. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. Beautiful words of the unshakable confidence and hope we have with the anchor of our soul tied to the promise of the word of God and the work of God. Isaac Bacchus was a leading minister in the, country, or the land that would become the United States of America during the American Revolution. He campaigned for free and independent churches in New England. He was born in Yantic, which is now part of Norwich, uh, in the state of Connecticut. Bacchus was influenced by the Great Awakening and he was influenced by Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. He was converted. He was, God saved him in 1741. He began preaching five years later in 1746. He was ordained in 1748. Uh, some century later, a 
professor at a seminary wrote a tome called A Memoir of the Life and Times of the Reverend Isaac Bacchus. And this is what that seminary professor captured as the words coming from Reverend Bacchus about the context of trials and troubles and periods in life where we need these kind of pillars that God gives us here. This is what Pastor Bacchus said as quoted in that book, quote, As the Holy Ghost witnessed to the Apostle Paul that in every day and every city bonds and afflictions awaited him, so the scriptures and our constant experience show that sorrows and troubles attend us in all our journey through this thorny maze. And then he gets personally says, Some rumor of death among my friends I heard in January, but I had no particular intelligence until the 14th of February. I was then informed that Grandmother Bacchus, Sister Abel, and Rufus were dead. About that time, I met with several trials of another nature, by all of which my thoughts were turned upon 1 Peter 1, verse 16, and I preached from this text the next Lord's Day. And just a side note, uh, 1 Peter 1, 16 is quoting from Leviticus, be holy even as I am holy. That was where Pastor Bacchus turned for hope and comfort in times of trouble. But the book continues on with the words of Pastor Bacchus. He said, I was led to observe, and he gives four traits, four elements of trials and tribulations for believers to hold on to and remember during these times. He said, I was led to observe that manifold trials attend God's people in this world. Number two, that these are sent because we have need of them to kill pride, to cure us of worldly-mindedness, to rouse us from our laziness, and to quicken our regard to eternal things. In, in other words, he's saying trials and tribulations are profitable for believers. Number three, the, that these temptations and sorrows continue but for a short season. And then finally, number four, that in the midst of them, God gives his saints springs of great joy. God gives his saints springs of great joy during those times of trouble. Pastor Bacchus finished, and blessed be the name of the Lord. I did not preach an unfelt religion. I have seldom seen affliction bear a more pleasant face than it did then, end quote. Beloved, God will stretch out history over time. He will force you to trust him. God has forced me, my children at times, to trust him. But what about you? What is God calling you to endure? Dear beloved, hold on to the solid rock of your salvation. Lord Jesus Christ, in his good word of promise, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your words of correction. We thank you for your words of consolation. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you're doing in our lives. Lord, at times it's so difficult, but we thank you even for the trials and the tribulations, whether they're sicknesses, whether there are betrayals, whether they are dangers, whatever the case may be, Lord, we know that you are good, that you are the one holding on to us and securing our salvation. Help us 
Lord Jesus, to follow you in all that we do. May the blessed assurance that we enjoy in your name grow and blossom and produce even greater levels of works and love and service for your glory, for the blessing our beloved brothers and sisters, and for a gospel light of witness to a lost and dying world. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.